All right, Zechariah chapter 3. Let's read the whole chapter. It's a short chapter. We can get it in. Let's read it. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, Lord, open our hearts that we may have ears to hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching today. I once again pray that you will give me clarity of thought and of speech so that I will be able to proclaim your word in a way that uh, is clear. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I particularly lift up to you sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. And I ask that you will draw them back to you, Lord. Don't let one of them be lost. I pray all of these things in the only name that matters, the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, I just, I, I neglected to say a special greeting. Uh, a couple of our brothers who are part of the Ethiopian congregation that meets over here are back worshiping with us today. All the way in the back. God bless you, my brothers. We're so glad you're here. Seventy long years of exile ended with the stroke of a pen. The word raced like wildfire through the Jewish community. Cyrus has issued a decree that permits us to return to our homeland. Households were packed, supplies were collected, wagons and carts and camels and mules and donkeys were loaded. Some 50,000 people set out that spring morning from the heart of Babylon under the leadership of Zerubbabel. After arriving in Jerusalem, 
The returning exiles commissioned the construction of a new altar on which they could offer the sacrifice required as part of the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurs toward the end of the seventh month, sometime in late September, right close to when we are right now. At this feast, the people shouted for joy over the blessings of God in bringing an end to their captivity and returning them to their homeland. If you listened closely, however, you could detect cries of lament mingled in from some of the old guard who had seen the city and the temple in all their former glory. Soon the construction project began in earnest, but it was a lot slower and harder than they expected. On the personal level, the people were trying to rebuild their own houses. They, they were trying to eke out a living in a land that had been laid waste. They were trying to reestablish a national identity, all while still under the authority of the Persian Empire. And then there was the work on the temple. Just laying the foundation was labor-intensive. But no sooner had the work began... Then jealous kings from surrounding territories began to oppose the work as well. They hired hecklers to taunt the workers. They pretended to offer help just so they could infiltrate the ranks and sabotage the project. Finally, they turned to politics and wrote a letter of objection to King Artaxerxes, who had now replaced Cyrus as the Chaldean monarch in Babylon. Artaxerxes, in turn, issued a stop work order while the matter was investigated. Things had never looked so dismal. For 16 years, the work languished in failure and chaos. Into this climate comes the prophet Zechariah. His name means the Lord remembers. And his very presence was a reminder that no matter how it appeared on the outside, God had not forgotten his people. No matter what opposition was encountered, God would be faithful to his promise. And I'd just like to hit the pause button on this message long enough to make that same proclamation to somebody who has ears right now to hear the word of the Lord. Without hesitation or reservation. I want to tell somebody who is struggling, the Lord remembers. The Lord sees where you are. The Lord hears your cries. The Lord knows your struggles. The Lord understands your disappointment. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. You are not alone. The Lord will be faithful to his promise. The Lord remembers. Now, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 1 of the book of Zechariah, the Lord speaks through the prophet through eight different visions, night visions. The central character in the fourth vision, which is the text for the message today, is Joshua. Now, this Joshua isn't the Joshua who was the successor of Moses, the guy that led the children of Israel into Canaan. This is, a, this is another this is the priest who came back from Babylonian exile to serve as high priest for the rem remnant that returned to Jerusalem. Well, as this vision begins, 
Joshua is the defendant on trial in the supreme court of the universe. That's the picture that Zechariah is painted in this vision. God is the judge. Satan, the accuser, is the prosecutor. And there's a being identified as the angel of the Lord who is the defense attorney. Now, as you look at this vision, the first thing this vision reveals is the guilt of the sinner. According to verse 1, Satan is standing to the right of the defendant, and he's doing just what his name suggests. See, according to Revelation 12 and 10, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's the meaning of his name, is accuser. And in this verse, he's making accusations against the defendant. And I want to tell you, his job as prosecutor is fairly easy in this case because Joshua is obviously guilty. We're told in verse 3 that his garments, his high priestly robes, are filthy. They are, when when he says they're filthy, this is beyond just being dirty. The word actually describes a robe that is splattered with both human excrement and vomit. So here is a priest. One who represented the people before God. And it was absolutely necessary that he be physically spotless as he ministered before God on behalf of the people. See, before he could ever enter the presence of the Almighty, he had to undergo ritual rites of purification and cleansing. He was continually washing and then changed clothes and washing again and produced specific sacrifices and cleansing rituals that would prepare him for priestly work. The fabric of his garments and the gemstones that were sewn into the breastpiece was of such dazzling quality and brilliance, it was almost too bright to gaze upon. Violating the command to come before the Lord with clean, pure garments was an offense for which he could be struck dead. For a priest to stand before God with filthy, excrement-covered clothes was absolute horror. He and the people he represented stood in danger of complete rejection by God for disobedience and unbelief. A dirty or tainted priest was an insult to God, and he could have been literally vaporized by the fire of God's righteous anger. And yet, here he is, standing before the throne of God, a stinking mess. When Zechariah saw the condition of the priest, he he knew what that meant. He, He would have been seized with terror. He would have realized the ramifications immediately. God's people were in grave danger. Either God will literally consume them with fire, or he will utterly abandon them, this time for good, and allow them to become just as vile and wicked as the pagans that surrounded them. Those garments represent the sin of which he and the entire community are guilty. They represent guilt, they represent shame, and Satan is exploiting that sin, shame, and guilt by his accusations. He's making sure that God sees all of this, and he's insisting that God judge and punish according to the requirements of the law. Now, 
In case you haven't figured it out by now, let me help you understand that this vision recorded in the book of Zechariah isn't just about a high priest named Joshua. It's not even about a word to, to the nation of Israel during the time of her return from exile. As you read the words of this vision, you would do well to insert your name where it says Joshua. Because he isn't the only one being accused. Right this very minute, while you are listening to this message, the accuser is standing before Almighty God making accusation to him about you. Every flaw of your life, every failure of your life, everything you've ever done wrong is being pointed out to God in glaring detail. All the things you know about, all the ones you forgot about, and even a few he invents just to see if God was really watching. He is accusing you. Garments, your, your, your spiritual garments that should be spotless are mottled. Robes that should be sparkling clean are filthy, dirty. And the longer you try to stand before God, the harsher and sharper the accusations come. He will shame you. He will embarrass you. He will cause you to be afraid to try and come into the holy presence. And while he's making those accusations against you before God, his demons are personally attacking you. They bombard your mind with thoughts of unworthiness and unrighteousness. Am I, am I telling you truth of what anybody's experienced, say, in the last 20 minutes? See, there are two great lies Satan tells about sin. Before you sin, he tells you that it's no big deal. This sin is of no consequence. Everybody's doing it. It, it, it may be wrong for some people, but you're able to handle it. Don't, don't worry about it. That's what he'll tell you before you do it. After you sin, he tells you that same sin that he first told you was no big deal. He tells you that sin has now made you eternally unacceptable to God and unworthy of his kingdom. So you might as well just quit right now. Does that sound familiar? Any of that sound familiar? He'll say, how can you claim to be a child of God and do that? You're not really much of a Christian thinking like that, saying that, acting like that. Oh, you've blown it for good this time. You'll never get another chance. You've violated God's law. You've trampled his grace one time too many. The accuser will even use the word of God as part of his arsenal against you. He'll remind you of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, that God's standard makes no allowances for sin or for sinners. He'll quote the Bible to you. He'll quote it, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which are, were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, how'd you measure up to that one? He'll remind you of the first part of Romans 6 and 23, for the wages of sin is death. He'll remind you of Ezekiel 18 and 14, the soul who sins will die. This incessant bombardment of his accusations is enough to crush you and drive you to despair. Now, Zechariah doesn't record the actual words of accusation, but it isn't too difficult to imagine the charges that are being leveled. I mean, the, he'll say, he's saying, 
this priest and these people aren't any good. He says, God, look, they're defiled, they're damaged, and you ought to get rid of them. You ought to break your relationship with them right now. The law is clear. Punishment must be carried out. On and on and on and on he goes with his accusation. And there's no justification offered, no rationale presented. And this is an airtight case. The evidence is plain to all as the accused stands attired in filthy garments. The guilt of the sinner is a proven fact. And if that, would be, if that were the end of the proceedings, the man would be carted off to punishment. But read a little bit further in this vision, and you find that the vision doesn't just reveal the guilt of the sinner, it also reveals the grace of the Savior. See, the accusations pile one on top of another, one on top of another, until finally the defense attorney speaks up, he calls out, objection. And first, an objection is filed against the tactics of the accuser. He turns to the accuser and he says in verse 2, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Now understand, this is no ordinary rebuke. This is no mild-mannered hand slap. This is the creator of the universe rebuking the accuser of the brethren on behalf of a priest with filthy robes representing 50,000 sinful people. He says, you are detestable, Satan. What you are doing is detestable. It might be logical. It might be reasonable. Maybe this relationship by all rights should be broken. Maybe this man should be condemned. But your insistence upon it is still detestable. And he continues and he says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Fire is symbolic of judgment. This man and this community, yes, they were being judged, but God says, I've pulled them out of that judgment. This man, this community is something God wants to rescue from judgment. Dirty or not, filthy or not, sinful, shamed, guilty or not, God still has a purpose for them. He has already started to save them by bringing them out of captivity, and he's determined he's going to finish what he started. Oh, if there's a child of God listening to this message today who has been feeling the effects of a spiritual battle, if you've been laboring under the accusations of the enemy against you if your mind has been bombarded with thoughts of how unworthy you are and how you're a miserable failure as a follower of Jesus if you've become discouraged and disillusioned hear the word of the Lord right now instead of trying to produce enough spiritual muscle to silence the enemy and instead of running from one place to another looking for somebody to lay hands on you and trying to find somebody to give you a word of personal prophecy, why don't you just let the Lord be your defender today? Let the Lord rebuke your adversary. He'll do it, I tell you. He will, watch this, he will never defend the sins of his children, but he will always defend his children. 
He will not stand for his children being abused by the enemy of their soul. He did not rescue you from the pit just to see you go under now. He did not snatch you out of the fire just to see you thrown back into it. The Lord will defend those who are his own. And there's something else in this objection. In verse 4, the Lord speaks to some of the spectators in the courtroom. He says, you guys over there, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And I want to tell you, this is the work of grace. You stand in filthy garments of sin, unable to make yourself acceptable to a holy God. See, your personal worth is meaningless to the God of whom Psalm 24 and 1 testifies, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Your personal wisdom is meaningless to the God who says, according to whose ways, according to Romans 11.33, are past finding out. Your personal knowledge is meaningless to the God in Isaiah 46 and 10, who declares the end from the beginning. Your creative genius is meaningless to the God who is the grand designer and master architect of the universe, who created all that exists by the word of his power. There is nothing you can do in yourself to gain acceptance in the presence of God. <laughs> but that's when your defense attorney steps in. You see, this being that is identified as the angel of the Lord, when you track that through the Old Testament scriptures, you discover the angel of the Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, when you cannot do anything to save yourself, Jesus extends his grace. He provides all that is necessary for you to stand in the presence of the Lord without shame and without guilt. And the first thing we see he does is he cleanses. That filthy garment that was covered in human excrement, he takes it away. Notice he didn't say he takes the sinner away. He said... Take the filthy garments from him. In other words, remove the sin, leave the saint. This is the meaning of Titus 3 and 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is the meaning of 1 John 1 and 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. I'm telling you that the moment you put your trust in Jesus, as your Savior, the moment you surrender your life to Him, at that moment, He cleanses you. And what you cannot do for yourself, the Lord Jesus does for you. Not only does He cleanse you, but He also clothes you. He removes your filthy garment and gives you festal robes of righteousness. This is not righteousness based on your goodness. It's based on His 
goodness. And this changes everything. Because now when the accuser brings his charges, he's not really accusing you. His accusation is against God. Whenever he claims that you're not clean, he's claiming that the blood of Jesus isn't strong enough to cleanse you. To cleanse you. I mean, you need to know right now that every hour of every day and every moment of every night, the Lord Jesus, your great high priest, is standing before God the Father, and he's interceding for you. He is your defense attorney right now. That's the meaning of Romans 8, uh, verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. That's the meaning of Hebrews 7 and 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the meaning of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I'm telling you, any time, day or night, the accuser brings charges against you in the heavenly courtroom. The Lord Jesus, your defense attorney, speaks up and says, Objection! No longer relevant. That may have been true once about this person. Oh, but the penalty for their transgression has already been paid. I paid it myself on the cross with my own blood. That garment exchange has been made. And now when the Father looks over at you, he does not see those old filthy garments you once wore. He doesn't see the effects of the accusation that the accuser brings against you. All he sees is that new festal robe of righteousness with which you have been clothed by the sacrifice of his son he cleanses you he clothes you and then he crowns you verse 5 then I said let them put a clean turban on his head so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by this turban that was the headdress of the high priest the instructions given in Exodus 28-26 said that there was to be a gold plate on the front of this turban with the words, holy to the Lord, engraved on it. Placing that turban on his head is an indication that this man is now back in fellowship with God. And I want to tell you, this is the work of grace, fellowship is restored, not on the basis of your good works, but on the basis of the completed work of Jesus. You cannot make yourself righteous. He imputes his righteousness to you on the basis of faith. You cannot make yourself holy. He declares you holy by the touch of his grace on your life. So when the father hears the objection, and then he, when he sees you clothed in the righteousness of his son... The ruling is made, and he declares, objection sustained. And over the howling protest of the accuser, the verdict is pronounced. The gavel comes down, not guilty, case dismissed. 
I tell you, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 is still true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Somebody ought to give him praise for that today. Hallelujah. When the enemy accuses, I, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. No longer applicable. The vision speaks of the guilt of the sinner. It speaks of the grace of the Savior. And then there's one more. Finally, I want you to see that it speaks the glory of the saint. Unless you think I'm reading more into this than is warranted... It's, it's right there in verse 8. And in verse 8, there is a messianic prophecy. Here the prophet declares, now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Now watch this. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. So this is not just about this vision, it's not just, but they represent something. They are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. Throughout the Old Testament, the branch is a title that is used to identify the Messiah, Jesus. Zechariah has the future reign of Jesus in view, while he's also encouraging that remnant that has returned. So not only then is there a messianic prophecy, but there is also a prediction of prosperity here. In verse 10, the prophet says, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. It's prosperity. It's, 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 it's rest. It's, it's, it's enjoyment of the goodness and the favor and the blessings of God. And this isn't just about a high priest and a remnant nation in ancient Israel. This is a promise to you who are the redeemed of the Lord through faith in Jesus. It's your promise. Go ahead and grab hold of that. Make it yours. And finally, I want you to see that there is a promise of reward. It's in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Now watch this. You who have been redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus. He says now that this has happened, you've got these clean robes on. Now you are called to obedience. That's a good word. We need to hear that today. It isn't just... Thank God I got clean robes and now I can go do anything I want to because no. No, now you're called to walk in obedience. That's a good word, Pastor. Nobody wants to hear that these days, but you're doing good, buddy. In fact, I kind of like your preaching today. You're doing all right. No, y'all missed the opportunity on that one. Understand that the condition about obedience, the condition that is attached to the blessing 
It has nothing to do with your relationship with him or your standing of righteousness. Neither do these conditions have anything to do with the defeat of the accuser. He's already defeated. These conditions that he attaches here in verse 7 have to do with your daily victory. Since you are in a right relationship with the Lord, you ought to live like it. Live out your identity as a believer in Jesus through practical expressions of obedience. So this is going to mean several things. First, for example, it's going to mean living by faith instead of fear. Living by faith, not fear. This is going to mean not giving in to the desires of the flesh, but walking according to the Spirit. This is going to mean taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I, I love you. I'm your pastor, been your pastor for a long time. Not planning on giving it up anytime soon, okay? I love you. But I just got to tell you, some of you frustrate the daylights out of me. <laughs> because of the way you think. The first thing happens, and the next thing you know, your mind is just going, whoa. To what is the worst thing, that can, the, the worst possible scenario, and then you lose sleep, and then you get yourself all in, it tied up in knots, and you, you, can't, you can't eat, and, you, and you're jittery and a jumble of nerves. Walking obedience means you're going to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get rid of your stinking thinking. Start thinking according to God's truth. This means also ordering your life according to the truth of God's word rather than by what's currently popular in the world. If you walk in his ways, if you obey his voice, his voice, he promises, this is his word, he promises that you will share in his authority in the spiritual world. And you will be enabled to live victoriously over Satan and sin. And probably one of the most magnificent promises is in the very last part of verse 7, where he promises that you will have free access in the heavenlies. Now you think about that. Anytime, day or night, there is an open line of communication between you and the Father. If you have a need, He's listening. If you just want to visit, He's available. You don't have to wait for a special invitation. You don't have to uh, worry that he might be too busy and not want to be disturbed. You have free access. Anytime you need him, he says, come on in. I'm here for you. What do you need? Come on in. What's going on in your life? Come on in. Let's talk about it. Free access. You don't have to wait and get get a a, a certain... uh, a certain emotional state. You don't have to 
have to get cleaned up. You don't have to put on certain, certain uh, attire. You, you just come, just like you are. Free access. Come on in. Come on in. This is what the writer is talking about in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, when he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then he says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, if your heart isn't right with God, Draw near to the throne, and there you will receive mercy, and you'll find grace. If you've been the victim of Satan's accusations, if you can't seem to find that sense of peace and that relief from condemnation, draw near to the throne, receive mercy, and find grace. If you're tired of struggling, if you need help and strength, draw near to the throne and receive mercy and grace. Every accusation, every guilt, every reason for condemnation, it is all nullified by the grace of God made possible through the sacrificial death of Jesus. And it is this grace that is available to you right now. Right now. Bow with me, please. Lord, I lift up the people of this congregation to you right now. Thank you for them. And Lord, I want to pray for that one that's listening to me right now who has not yet surrendered their life to you. I pray that you'll give them the courage to do that. Oh Lord, draw them to your side right now. Send the Holy Spirit after them to, to prod them, to urge them, to to, to woo them. Don't let one of them be lost, Lord. Right now, right now, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you don't need to raise a hand, you don't need to stand, you don't need to come forward. All you need to do is in the quietness of your own heart, just look to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, I surrender to you. I'm not going my way. I'll go your way. And he'll give you the grace to do that. He'll exchange that old dirty garment of sin and he'll give you his robe of righteousness in its place. That's all you do. Just, yes, Jesus, I surrender to you. You do that now and your life will forever change. You'll be transformed. So Lord, I pray for that person that's doing that. Give them the the, the courage to do that. And Lord, I'm also praying for these people that they're struggling in an area. They, they've, they're worried. They, they, they can't seem to get the victory in an area. We bring that to you right now, Lord Jesus, and we turn it over to you. You've invited us to come, so we're coming to you. And you said if we would come, we'd find mercy and grace. And that's what I'm praying will be extended to your people so that we can walk out of this place, we can leave this service, condemnation removed, guilt erased, 
free in you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Give us the assurance of your work right now. And I thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.